0: I find that people are bolder, partly because they don't want to waste any time. So um, I'm a designer and I love um, deadlines. And I think as we get older, we realize, hey, you know, I don't have forever. So if I'm going to do something, I better do it now. And that kind of... um, Moves you forward. Um, and most of the people that we co designed um, life with, um, older people, were really interested in um, doing what they love and wasting less time.
1: I'm Debbie Weil, and this is the Boulder Podcast, where we talk about making the most of growing older. Today, I talk with Aisha Bursell. She's an award-winning and internationally recognized industrial designer whose firm has designed hundreds of products for brand-name companies like Herman Miller, Ikea, and Target. You've probably sat on one of her products, a toilet seat. She's taken her industrial design methodology, broken it down, simplified it, made it fun and inviting, and turned it into a process for life design. The result is her second and newest book, Design the Long Life You Love, a step-by-step guide to love, purpose, well-being, and friendship. One of her points is that life, just like a design problem, is full of constraints, time, money, age, location, and circumstances. And if you're older, uh, maybe designing your last chapter, you know what your final constraint is. You can't have everything, so you have to be creative. You have to think like a designer. You have to get ideas and beliefs out of your head and down onto paper and do it with an attitude of playfulness and optimism. So the book is filled with Aisha's whimsical drawings and her step-by-step maps Four, how to make new friends, how to reimagine work, how to create meaning, how to separate achievement from success, how to check your well-being index, and one of my favorites, how to reconcile yourself to unresolved issues. Make a list, she says. Pick three, personify them, write them a letter, and then let them go. She calls her method deconstruction-reconstruction, meaning deconstruct your life, do a lot of exploring and scribbling and drawing, and then reconstruct the life you want. Her new book is jammed with exercises and lists and interviews with her favorite mentors. And Aishae says, you have to draw, even if you think you can't, every day as a way to rev up your creative brain. My copy of her book is littered with yellow sticky notes. I really love this book. Check the show notes for links to her books, her TEDx talk, and more. Let's jump in. Aisha, welcome to the show. Debbie, thank you so much for having me. I have been loving your book. I just love all the quirky drawings and and maps, you call them. But, um, you know, what you say about friendship and how to make friends. And I guess, especially as you get older, really caught my eye. And you say to, um, well, you, there's a six step process and you have this marvelous quirky map you've drawn of it, but you say to start, well, this is step six, start with a stranger and think about what gift you might want to give that person. You know, something that comes from your heart. Well, tell us about that.
0: So one of the things about um, friendship is that um, when we're younger, you know, there are all these structures from school to work to family that provides opportunities for us to make friends. But I find that as we get older, we kind of uh, either lose those structures or we get really comfortable having old friends. So I wanted to remind people of how you make new friends and I call them fresh friends. And giving a gift to someone is a great way to engage them and to show, to show them that you care. Uh, and so, and I learned this from uh, Lee Kim, who's in my book who during covid started making these amazing hats using pipe cleaners and she would sculpt these hats actually with her daughter who was i think like seven or eight around that time and then she started wearing those hats on the street and if somebody came up to her and talked about her hat she would take off the hat and give them a gift of her hat and that would be you know, sometimes that would be the beginning of a friendship. And so when I met um, Lee Kim, uh, we met uh, at Brian Park, and she brought me a hat. And once she gave me <laughs> her true. hat, uh, I put it on, and that was the beginning of our friendship. So I wanted to put that in the book as, like, here's how you can make fresh
1: friends. But hold on, but hold on. What, what if we don't, what if we can't make hats out of is it? Is there something, I don't know, is there like a general guide for, I mean, I'm not going to bring a wrapped gift to like no, a first no, no. meeting with it, someone.
0: It, I think it's, you know, the idea of a gift could be anything that is something you choose, right? For Lee Kim, it's a hat. Um, for me, it's, um, I like to give flowers as a gift or I'm Turkish, so I give evil eyes um, but it's really the idea comes originally from our childhood where we might be in a sandbox uh, playing with other kids. And if somebody wants your, um, I don't know, uh, you know, one of your toys and you give them that toy, that can become the beginning of that friendship. Right. Oh, yeah. So that, yeah, That's that... the idea.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. Um I love that. Another thing you talk about that really that really struck me is um the similarities between young adulthood and older adulthood. Can you tell us tell us a little more about that?
0: Yes, that was one of the big aha's from our research. Uh it was exactly what you just said that there are more similarities between 20-year-olds and um, 60, 70-year-olds then meets the eye. So, um, for example, if you have kids and your kids leave the home, right, um, and you suddenly find yourself as an empty nester, and you start thinking about, like, I am soon to become an empty nester in a couple of months. um, And you start thinking, well, I won't need all this um, space anymore. We should downsize and I won't have to maybe spend so much money on um, buying things for my kids. Maybe I could use that time and money for traveling. And so you start to think about those things of like downsizing, travel experiences, and maybe renting a space instead of buying one. And, And it's actually very similar to what... Um, young people experience when they move out of their parents' home into a dorm or into their, a place of their home. It's a small space. Um, they don't have a lot of means, but what they have, they used on um, travel and creating experiences and meeting new people. And so we realize that when you take the long view of on life and look at life as a long continuum, you start to see these patterns. And, you know, early life is a lot with like family, large spaces, um, you know, multiple family members. And then as you grow uh, and move into your 20s, you leave that family behind in you go for education, travel, uh, a place of your own, but then you start your own family and you, you, the family grows again um, this time with the young person as the, um, the parent. And then you invest in a larger space for your family, you um, travel less, instead you, um, you, know, you work hard. And then as your kids, um, if you do have kids, move out, or as you maybe decide to um, retire from your main occupation um your time frees up and you ha- you, you know you want to learn new things again and it, it yeah it's this yeah
1: cycle and that yeah i just uh it, that's a very interesting pattern i was it does make me think or ask but how is it different i mean are you braver when you're and i'm 70 you know when you're this 60s going into the 70s in terms of imagining the future because you know you have all this wisdom um or or is that silly i i, I don't know i mean did in your research no,
0: that's not silly um, at all actually um
1: you do have a lot more wisdom
0: and that comes from uh, you might have heard this term crystallized intelligence and yeah, it's, yeah. um all your experiences coming together so as an older person Um, you are wiser and you see patterns more quickly. And that helps you with a lot of um, things, one of which is, um, you know, decision-making. And so I find that people are bolder, partly because they don't want to waste any time. So Mm. um, I'm a designer and I love um, deadlines and I think as we get older, we realize, hey, you know, I don't have forever. So if I'm going to do something, I better do it now. And that kind of um, moves you forward. Um, and most of the people that we co designed um, life with, um, older people, were really uh, interested in um, doing what they love and wasting less time. So, and I'm like telling my kids that do what you love and waste less time. Yeah.
1: Oh, that, I like that. Well, speaking of, well, I mean, again, and I, yeah, there's something about deadlines. I'm, I'm just terrible. I just don't function unless I have a deadline, but you're right. There is this sort of deadline of life. So I, I love the way you put that. So speaking of design, you are an industrial designer, I guess, and also an executive coach. Uh, What does an industrial designer do? And I know I've read that you and your firm are known for having designed toilet seats and potato peelers. But what is an industrial designer? Oh, I love that question. Thank you. Uh, I can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Industrial design is um, every product we use and almost every experience we have um, whether with physical objects or websites, you know, buying something from Amazon, those experiences, digital experiences, everything is designed, right? Um, and the design means that you're trying to solve problems for other people. And industrial design means that you're designing products that are manufactured industrially in factories. And it's really to differentiate that from crafts, crafts is let's say um you're making a chair you might make one chair you might make four chairs and you 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 might do it you know using your hands um versus when i design a chair that gets made by industry and you, you have machines that make it which means that it gets sold in the hundreds thousands and millions and so um Yes, I've designed toilet seats and potato peelers and office systems. And I design them for people that I don't know, Um, but I um, empathize with things that they will need. And I try to solve for those needs And, um, and work with, you know, I work with engineers so that they can make something that is structural and manufacturable. And then you, as the end user, Debbie, uh, buy something that I've designed. You've probably used
1: something that I've already designed, and you don't even know it. You know, uh, by the way, I, I think I do have the potato peeler that has the comfortable handle. <laughs> I, I like that one. Well, so, but wait, you know, I, I meant to ask you: How did you get from industrial design to designing your life? Which, uh, that's pretty interesting. Is is it because of the process, or it's exactly because of the process? So,
0: um. I I had been designing products for about 20 years. So I was an expert industrial designer, uh, you know, winning awards and working with some of the best brands um, that you could imagine. And um and one day I decided to think about how I think, which was really interesting. You sit down and it's kind of like a journey into your head. And I'm like, how do I design products? What happens? And it took me about a year, and I developed a process um, that came from my experience as an industrial designer. And I called it deconstruction, reconstruction. And once I had the process, I thought, well, you know what? I think that my life is my biggest project. And if my life is my biggest design project, and now I have a process can I apply this process to my life? And so it started with like, what if I applied this process to my life kind of question? And, yeah. and then a friend of mine, um, Shirley Moulton said, Aisha, that's really an interesting idea. Why don't you do a workshop about it? And I'll you know, help you with that. And she had just started this um, company called Academy of Life. And she was teaching people things we don't learn at school. And I said yes to her. And that was my very first workshop, Design the Life You Love. Um, that's how it's. It oh,
1: yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting that you spent a year sort of deconstructing your own process. Because I, no, I noticed that in the book throughout and just marvelous that your design method is deconstruction, reconstruction. So I, I ran across on one of the pages this um, little quote and it said it's from you it says for me design is imagining the future you love based on what you know today can you deconstruct that
0: (laughs) oh thanks for catching that yes (laughs) (laughs) you know we're bound by what we know right um so whatever we're going to imagine um, is going to be founded on what we know today so I just want to assure everyone like you're enough what you know is enough to imagine the future but mm. the way we imagine it is by um, deconstructing and basically breaking, the links between things the connection between things that we assume are there when you deconstruct your life or an idea um, you basically start to instead of seeing the whole you start to see the parts and then when you start to see the parts you can say hey some of these parts I want to keep, some of them I want to change, some of them I want to connect in new and different ways. And that is the imagination part that moves you to the future. And once you have an interesting idea, reconstructing something and saying, now this is going to go with this and I'm going to get rid of that, um, then you you could create different permutations of ideas not only one but multiple ideas but one of those ideas is going to strike you as like hey this is really interesting you know I wonder if I can bring this to life and once you have that excitement that's what propels you to the future and you you start experimenting and you try things out and this is Mm -hmm. true in design and this is true when you design your life or your work or your long life
1: you know I wonder if you could give us an example. For example, say one is 70 years old and you're looking, you're deconstructing all of the things you do and you realize you just spend way too much time on Facebook and you want to get rid of that. Um, Is it just becoming really conscious and saying to yourself, okay, I'm going to get rid of that. And instead I'm going to take a walk and, find a stranger and make a new friend (laughs) i'm just (laughs) so maybe if
0: we go debbie i love that um example and if we were to do it live together probably the starting point is not like i want to stop using facebook but you could say that but probably it starts with a problem and the problem is i don't have enough time to do x right Mm. um and it could be that you don't have enough time to learn something, or you don't have enough time to exercise. So then oh, yeah. no you, I, yeah. you, you deconstruct the, the notion of time and you go, okay, let me map out, where do I spend my time? So it's suddenly that notion of time, which is like a meta concept, right? You realize that, that time is spent doing different things. And once you see those things laid out, and I you know, always encourage people to write these things down and map them out, because you have to get it out of your head and onto some paper, something you can see. And then you, you're like, oh, you know, I spent like three hours on Facebook. What if I spent an hour on it? And then the other two hours, I did other stuff with it. And then you mm. start thinking, um, well, what would I love to do? What would bring me joy? And, uh, you know, and you could say, hey, you know, taking a walk would bring me joy and it would be exercise, but it just takes like, I'll only do half an hour of that. And the rest of the time, I'll, I'll maybe, um, you know, talk to my friends. You know, you, you're making me think we we actually I had a conversation with a friend of mine, uh, Leah Kaplan, who's one of my BFFs, you know, best friends forever, and um, closest collaborator. And Her son just left for college. And I said to Leah, Leah, just make sure that the time that you were spending on, like taking care of your son, uh, making food, doing laundry, you know, you name it. Now take all that time and don't squander it away. Mm. uh, Use it for something that you want
1: for yourself and so that that's the that's the idea of yeah you know. well and in other words be very intentional now you mentioned getting things out of your head and that was something else i saw in in the book as you talk about yoga for the mind <laughs> but then you're also talking about the connection between your brain and your hand and you know to draw what brings you joy wait so before you tell me that it's just really easy to draw, what you have in front of you, what brings you draw. I'm, I am one of these people. I just see, I've seemed to, I don't have that connection. What I look at, I have a lot of trouble drawing. So I love the idea, but if I don't have this good brain hand connection, what should I do? Or how can I fix it? Right. So I'm really glad
0: you're, you're mentioning that because A lot of people I work with and talk to um, who come to my workshops say similar things where when I ask them, like, when is the last time you drew something? They're like, oh, kindergarten. (laughs) And I'm like, that's enough. You know, just draw like you did in kindergarten. This is not about, you know, I get to do the beautiful drawings because I'm a designer and that's where my talent is. Um, But you can do stick figures if you can hold a pen or a pencil and you can draw a stick figure or a triangle, that's all that's needed. If you can write by hand, I would really encourage it. You know, I- um, Oh yeah, no, I love that. Yeah. yeah. So um, that that, is, that doesn't mean that you have to be an amazing draftsperson or draw beautiful things, but I think we spend so much time like typing things into the computer or into our phones, um, that we have disconnected from that physicality of holding the, a stylus or a pen or a pencil. You know you could do this on an iPad as well. But like just making that physical connection between what you're thinking and then have that come out of your hand, you know that that's really the the cognitive um, piece of it that I want to um, encourage people. That there is a correlation yeah. between our brain, yeah. and our hands. Sorry,
1: I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad you've now given me permission to draw my stick figures. Um, uh, when a grandchild asks me to uh, draw a horse, I really just freeze up. But we'll, that's separate. We'll have <laughs> horses. So um, so the, in the um, given that you are an a draftsman and illustrator. There's just so many wonderful quirky drawings in the book. And I think some of them I would call maps. They're like Mm step-by-step. There was one that um, I was really intrigued by, and it's called um, Reconciling the Past and the Future. In other words, dealing with unresolved things in your life. And on the page of these wonderful little quirky drawings, the steps are, you know, number one, make a list of what still hurts. Uh, number two, pick three things. Number three, write a letter. Number four, let go. And then on so on. And I thought, wow, sounds great. I don't know if I can do that. So tell us a little bit more about that.
0: So for some of the things in my book, I asked uh, my friends to help me uh, kind of from their expertise to uh, expand on ideas that I was interested in and that came up on our research. So, um, what you're describing comes from Ron Carucci, um, who's the amazing author of, um, Be Honest. And, and he was talking about like, I when you're thinking about a long, honest life, authentic life, what's really important is to help people kind of, um, maybe not get rid of their regrets, but kind of um, manage their regrets. And so this, what you just described, is his six steps. Because I was like, make it simple for people to be Mm. able to kind of act on it. So I didn't want a whole like uh, chapter on regrets. I was like, give me the one, two, three of like, how could we manage our regrets? And he said, well, just like you said, first make an inventory. So again, deconstruct, get it out of your head, make a list of the things that you regret. Where are you hurting? And then once you have kind of a long shopping list of, of those um, then pick the three that are maybe most important. Right. Um, And then, Personify them and write them a letter, and this could be truly a regret around a person. But you know, if it's oh, you know, if it's um, not about the person, but it's maybe a a job that you didn't take, you could write a letter to that job, and then and he says, let them go, um, and letting go is literally telling them, you know, I don't need you in my life anymore. Um, but then the thing that I thought was so interesting was to share. So um, for example, if I did this and I had three things, I might call you up, Debbie, and say, Debbie, I I actually want to read this to you. Um, Mm. Share it with a good friend or somebody who listened to you. Um, And then in doing that, again, get it out of your head, out into the open, and then let them fly. Take off.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, that's so interesting. I actually didn't catch the write a letter was to write a letter to the thing. So I'm really glad you clarified that. Um, Before I forget, tell us, you've mentioned research a couple of times. Can you tell us briefly what the research was that revealed some of the insights like young adulthood and older adulthood?
0: Yeah. So what we did about, um, this is pre-COVID in 2018 and 2019, um we were invited by the SCAN Foundation. Um, Bruce Chernoff was the president of the SCAN Foundation. and The SCAN Foundation is a nonprofit based in LA, and they're the premier nonprofit about policymaking around aging. And um, they asked me if I could partner with them and do a year-long research um, asking older people people who were 65 plus to come be a designer with us for a day and this was based on uh, my process of design the life you love which my first book is about um, basically asking people to design their life with us um, and design their life 65 plus so um, we traveled the states from new york where i am to la and to the south mississippi so basically east west and the south um, urban suburban and rural asking people to join us asking people who are 65 plus to join us for a day um, to design their life and we did this about um, 15 times uh, with a toll of 250 people and learned just incredible things from them. And that's the research I'm referring to. And that that research oh. changed everything, all my, like upended all my preconceptions around aging. So um, that's how I decided I, I need to write a book about this. Wait, well, so tell us, what was one of your preconceptions
1: about aging?
0: Yeah, you know, my preconceptions about aging is, I think, one that most people have, and that is you age and something breaks down, you know, and, you know, whether it's your health or your finances or your family or um, your work. And it's a very reductionist viewpoint of, like, life. And, And unfair, because now we have 20, 25, maybe 30 more years than our grandparents did. And to condemn those, you know, it's really three decades potentially of your life um, into this reductionist point of view is, is really unfair. But that, that's kind of like what we assumed. And when you ask older people, you know, when you interview them or you observe them, they tell you all your problems, right? So then it's easy to assume, yeah, you know, you have lots of problems as you age. But what we did is we didn't ask them problems we didn't ask them their problems we didn't interview them we said would you like to design your life and debbie what was interesting is none of the people and they were like 65 to 90 plus in like every age in between none of them told us where have you been all my life don't you think it's a little late to, <laughs> to design my um. life they They were like, "Yeah, I'm in. I want to design my life." and they they had such incredible resilience and optimism, and what they really had was a growth mindset. And they basically said, "Yes, things break down. Yes, I fell down, but you know, nothing broke. I got up, and I you know, I continued. so in the, the, that that kind of growth mindset. That optimism is something that we really wanted to bring forth. That the thrill is not gone; it's actually the thrill is on, and we're excited to be alive. So that, thats the oh, main, main yeah, lesson.
1: Yeah. Aisha, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad. Well, I'm so glad now you have something to look forward to, <laughs> because <laughs> yes. I know you're not quite there yet. Have I? What have I forgotten? Is there one thing? What have I forgotten to ask you? I think you asked that uh, one.
0: One of the important things we learned is that, um, like I said, the thrill is on. But inside of that, there's this other idea that I think um, is like. If you ask me, I should boil your your research and your book into two words. What did we, what would it be? I would say same different, and that was the <gasps> other thing we learned: same different. Same different means, uh, basically, these older people told us, if you want to understand what we want, think no further than what you want. We want the same things. We want love, purpose, well-being, and friendship. No matter what our age, these are timeless desires. But how we can get to them might be a little bit different. And that message, I think, is beautiful and gives me hope and a lot of empathy for um, both older people and younger people. So that, that's the idea, same difference. Oh, I say thank you so much.
1: <laughs> you're very welcome. And that's it for this episode of The Boulder Podcast. If you like what you're listening to, help us spread the word. Tell a friend, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts and email us at thebolderpodcast at gmail.com. Till next time, I'm Debbie Weil.